Hey, this is Roshan Agnew, and you're listening to 12 Angry Minutes, a show about art and anger. Hey guys, welcome back to 12 Angry Minutes. Uh, First off, thank you so much to everyone who listened to our first episode a couple of weeks ago. Thank you so much for the feedback. And secondly, apologies for the delay with our second episode. It is 100% my fault. I've had to move out of two houses in the past month and it's been a bit stressy. And also it's the summer and I'm having a really good time. So cut me some slack. Welcome back. It's episode two. We're actually fucking doing this. Um, thank you for the feedback, everybody that got in touch with us. Thank you for the people who were so interested in Jessie. She is pretty fucking cool. And let's move on to some of the feedback and what we're going to be doing. So firstly, thanks to my mum for telling me that she thought the introduction was too rambly and that uh, I was minimizing the importance of anger in society by describing it as cool. Um, I'm going to address that straight up. So I think when I was saying that anger is experiencing a moment of cool, um, I think what I'm describing is the idea of wokeness, the idea that being sort of attuned to what's going on in the world and being indignant, angry, upset and vocalizing that has actually become something that gets a lot of social affirmation, whether it's on the internet, via Twitter, or whether it's actually kind of just society and culturally, there's been a shift where I think young people being angry are becoming more accepted or it's becoming something that's more normal. That was what I was describing. My mum obviously is not a human of the internets, so perhaps she wouldn't get it quite to the same extent. But yeah, that's what I was describing. So mum, that's... That's what I meant when I said cool. Being woke has become socially accepted. And being woke, in a way, entails being pissed off. I had another interesting conversation about anger, though, in the last couple of weeks. I went to Malaga after a car breakdown, and I met a friend, Marco, who is Italian, obvs, but also is kind of a bit of um, a very chill dude, a bit of a hippie. And he was saying how he thinks anger and activism very much aren't the way to create societal change. Um, And he obviously was thinking that it has to come from a deeper, more spiritual place. But I would completely disagree if I think of any kind of societal change that I have experienced in my lifetime, be it something like the marriage referendum, be it something like the huge campaign for repeal the aid, be it something that doesn't touch my life personally, but that I see from afar, like the Black Lives Movement, Um, or even the anger that kind of got so many young people out and voted for Jez in the last election, that was motivated by anger. And I think anger can be such a positive and powerful force for good. So Marco, love you, but disagree. And on the back of that, here is this week's quote about anger from the amazing Maya Angelou. Bitterness is like a cancer. It eats the host. But anger is like fire. It burns it all clean. Thank you, Maya. A couple of things that I'm going to address also on the back of the last episode. Firstly, my accent. What's going on? All right. So I am Irish-Italian. That's how I describe myself. It's how I identify. I was born and raised in Rome. Um, I went to an American 
school for eight years after having been at an English school for six years. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, but my parents are both Irish, and then I moved to Dublin when I was 18 to go to Trinity. Yes, I'm a dick, but um, but that's my accent, guys. That explains it all. The other thing I was going to um, address is got some feedback from my wonderful producer, Brian. Hey, uh, Brian says, yeah, I'm listening to Sapiens. You should check it out. Really good audiobook. Really bizarre. Not generally my speed, but it kind of looks at where human beings come from, etc., etc. I actually cannot describe it better than that, but check it out. So this week... On the podcast, we have someone who is very special to me. We have Una Malali. Our Irish listeners, which let's face it, the majority of you are, might know Una. Una is an Irish Times uh, columnist, but she's also someone who has written for Granta, she's written for The Guardian, and she is a major activist. Uh, she was very important in the marriage referendum campaign, uh, has been very vocal and important to the repeal of the eighth campaign. And on a personal level, Una has been someone who's always supported me and always encouraged me when I've gotten down, depressed, or just out of work. And I was delighted to have her on the podcast. What is Una talking about for her 12 Angry Minutes? She is talking about vanishing queer spaces. The idea that as the gay community becomes more socially accepted, particularly in a place like Ireland, where now we have obviously marriage, gay marriage, um, are we missing out on what was originally transgressive and queer about the gay community? So without further ado, here is my beloved Una Malali on 12 Angry Minutes. So I think a good place to start with you is that, in a way, among the kind of young journos, you're one of the few people who's both like managed to carve out the space and also managed to kind of tackle certain questions that have kind of turned you into the political voice of a generation, in a way. That's an exaggeration, but go on. No, I think it's true because also, let's say you were also lucky because I feel like at the time that you were really coming into yourself as a writer, you also had these two major kind of political things happen at the same time. One was obviously the marriage equality mm -hmm. referendum and the other thing has been repeal the eighth and you've been like a really strong voice on both of these things. Do you think that there was a kind of luck in the fact that these two things happened at that time? I think, I guess it's just when I came of age, you know, I, I was, I think the biggest stroke of luck that happened to me was when I came out of college in 2005, I guess. You know, there was uh, employment opportunities in journalism. Mm. And I managed to get a job in a newspaper straight away in the Sunday Tribune, an internship that, that led to a job. So I think that was really lucky because, you know, smack bang in the middle of the Celtic Tiger, there was, you know, underemployment like ugh, there was overemployment you know it was it was just you could you could actually walk a bunch of people could walk into a newspaper and get jobs which is just you know sounds incredible now considering the the industry is so on its knees mm. so i think that's lucky and i guess you know i think we are in this big cycle of of social change in ireland as well um which is being driven by primarily by young people as well as kind of some activists who who've stuck it out over the decades so I guess, yeah, it's just kind of part of that. Like we're all living in this really weird country that is changing a lot, you know. Mm. And 
I mean, that role of kind of having to sort of get an opinion, you're an opinion kind of, you need to have an opinion on things now. You're like setting the sort of agenda for what someone like Una Malali might think about a certain question. <laughs> um, are you getting a lot of hate? Do you get hate? No, I th- oh, I've always got um, faced a lot of opposition, I suppose, in my writing. Um, Why is that? Well, I guess I was quite precocious uh, because, you know, I was working in the Tribune when I was 21 and I guess I got a column when I was about 23. God damn you, Una. Yeah, well, it was just the way it was at the time. It was a Mm. series of events. Um, So I'm 33 now, so I've been writing a column for 10 years, Um, you know, which is is actually longer than a lot of so-called super established experienced people have been doing it. So big time. I have good practice in it and being a columnist requires you know having opinion and formulating arguments and things I am very opinionated across a lot of stuff and I think that my position which has always been you know to try and cut through the bullshit uh, to be vocal about stuff to take points of view that are trying to get to the heart of things um, you know that kind of rubs people up the wrong way sometimes and also doing that as a woman who is unapologetic about seeing the world through a feminist lens uh, also can can irritate people. But, you know, you kind of learn to... Like, that kind of criticism or whatever is so old to me. You know, the, the, the idea that every Monday when my column is printed in the Irish Times that a load of people will, you know, go off on me. Yeah, that happens and I don't care. Mm. You know, that's just the, that's just the way that it is. And I think, over you now. Yeah, and I think that's kind of can be jarring to people sometimes as well because, you know, I, I am very self-assured. You know, I've no problem saying that I'm very confident. Um, I know that I'm very capable and I'm good at what I do. Mm. And I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm an idiot. I just got here, you know, because things happen. It's like, you know, I am where I am because I work really hard and because I'm talented and I'm I'm good at what I do. Mm. So, you know, taking that stance as well, you know, you're not ne- you're not meant to say those things. Yeah. Um, and you're not. I would constantly say I'm here because I'm an idiot. But I mean, that that makes sense. Yeah, actually. But, but like, it's, it's like you're not meant to take those positions. You know, like a, a guy is you're allowed. Not supposed to own your shit. Yeah. Like, a, 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 you know, so many of my male peers and colleagues, um, you know, especially pro- across broadcasting, you mm. know, could you know, have have a radio show and go on like a five minute rant about something at the top of the show, and that's just like someone being opinionated. Yet, can you imagine a, a radio program on Irish radio where a woman did, went full, you know, George Hook or Jerry Ryan or whatever at the start at the start of a show? No. And why? Why is that like? And and why can't that be a space for, for, for women as opposed to being the stoic current affairs deliver, deliverers of factual information. Measured. Like women always have to be measured and they can't kind of hold forth on stuff. I yeah, have noticed so, that. I don't know why that so I is think, the case. So I think, you know, because I'm not, I can, I can often not be measured mm. and that I often do, you know, kind of pontificate or hold forth or something or hold court or mm. whatever, um, that that then you know, makes people annoyed sometimes. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but I also think that, you know, people kind of see my point of view as as something that is relevant and that might reflect what they think as well. So that's far more important to me than people who don't think that. Oh, yeah. So now let's talk about another great passion in your life, which is the session. 
You are <laughs> deeply hungover this morning. <laughs> Thank you no for worries. busting me on that. No can't hack the set. You guys can't see her, but I can tell you. <laughs> I'm is. clutching a can of Diet Coke, wondering where it all went wrong. Exactly. But no, I am like, this is something I'm really thinking about. So by the time this podcast comes out, I will be living in Lisbon and uh, I'm really looking forward to it right now. I leave tomorrow. Um, and like half the reason I'm leaving is because I need to do some work. I need to do some writing. I need yeah. to do some reading. And I've just found it so hard over the last two, three years to do anything in a single-minded fashion, mm. particularly in Dublin. Like we kind of forget that there is a complete like inner logic to the city that like mm. in other countries and other cities, it doesn't happen. The idea of like being out on the session is not so sort of ubiquitous yeah. in other cities. Here we party really hard and I wonder, do you think it has an effect on productivity and stuff? I or? don't know. I think Irish people are pretty productive. I think it's its its own little microcosm. Certainly for me, I, I actually was never one really for sessioning every weekend. Mm. Um, I can't hack it. Like I've never, maybe once in my life, done the rollover. Ooh. So I, I don't, I can't do that. Yeah. Um, I do have to kind of call it at some point. Um, I can't physically, because I've gone through so many surgeries uh, and recovering from cancer, my body actually can't process uh, alcohol in the same way. Okay. So if I have like three or four beers, yeah, that's kind of... That's where you're kind at. Of done. Yeah, and if, if then I start drinking over that, then I'm going to get absolutely wankered. Okay. How long has it been since you got the, like, all clear on the cancer? Um, I was cancer-free in November, December of 2015. Okay. Yeah, so I was diagnosed in March 2015. And remind us, what was it that you were diagnosed with? Stage 3 bowel cancer. Um, Friday 13th, March uh, 2015. Um, yeah, so like the, my recovery from it has kind of been miraculous, you know, yeah. I just keep saying gay people are magic. Gay people. Um, so yeah, I was really, really lucky because originally the plan was that I would be finish my treatment kind of mid to late 2016. Mm. And I ended up finishing it after my last surgery, which was November 2015. So I like got six months off the hook. I was meant to do six months more chemo. God, that's so amazing. Yeah. We're very, yeah, gay people are magic. Yeah. Now I'm still, obviously, there's loads of side effects and dealing with all that. And I was meant to be in follow-up for five years. That's the general plan. Okay. But now I'm in lifelong follow-up. Oh. Yeah. So that was a bit of a bummer. Um, But that's just, you kind of just have to get through that. I think they're just kind of freaked out that I might get it again. Because okay. it was so unusual. Um. So they're just like, we're going to keep a very close eye on you. I'm like, okay, <laughs> better get everything done of, before I die. The rest of your life will be looking at you. Yeah. Not creepy at all. You can find 12 Angry Minutes on Twitter at thisheadstuff and at guts underscore magazine. Hey, you're doing a repeal book also. Yes. Yeah, Unbound.com, a publisher called Unbound, which is a Brit British publisher who have this model where they crowdfund the production of the book. Mm. Um, and then they, you know, 
publish it as normal. And then it's sold through an imprint of Penguin Random House on the commercial end. So it is an anthology of the literature and art and design and stuff that has emerged from the repeal of the Eighth Movement. Oh, amazing. And yeah. is it going to be like a coffee book then? Is it? No, it'll be, be like, like a book book. A book book. A non-coffee book. A tea book. <laughs> a as tea well. book. <laughs> oh, that's nice, isn't it's it? Nice. TM, TM, trademark, don't steal it. <laughs> <laughs> and who do, who's going to be involved? Give us a, give us a little scoop here. Oh, I can't. You can't um, give any no, scoops? No, I can't give any scoops, I'm afraid. But I'll tell you what, there's some like really awesome people, like super award-winning people. There's some like super famous international people. Oh, incredible. So uh, it's going to be good. And how did you come up with this idea that this would be your next thing? Uh, funnily enough, a mate of mine who is a writer as well, Louise O'Neill, I think these publishers were like asking her who who might be good for it and Louise hooked his sister up. Oh. So she put me girl, put them in touch, touch with me and then I kind of chatted to them about it and they were like let's do this. Yeah, it seems so obvious. I'm kind of surprised that no one else just decided to do this and like Yeah, well like so obvious that it wasn't freaking so, money just given to it though that so, it has to be so, crowdsourced is a so, bit mental. Yeah, so obvious uh, that I didn't come up with it. Yeah. <laughs> that they did. How did you not? So then all of the 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 my of well, I think it's fifty percent of my profits from it, or fifty percent of the profits are going back into um the repeal the coalition to repeal the eighth. So by funding your the book you're funding that as well. And um yeah, that's the buzz. And where can people go and fund it? Unbound.com. All right, people, get funding. Get funding that repeal book. Um, so obviously we're a podcast about anger. And the way I've come to this thing is that, like, I get angry about stuff a lot. And people don't, like, sometimes I actually think I, I would define myself as an angry person. Mm. And I'm actually, like, I my shrink part of the, what I cover with her, I do like cognitive behavioral therapy and I do mindfulness. And one of the things we try to focus on with my mindfulness thing, by the way, you guys, I'm not like a, I'm constantly in therapy kind of person. I'm just starting to see her. I love her. She makes like really weird incest jokes and uh, we're going to be doing FaceTime while I'm in Portugal FaceTime sessions. Cool. Yeah. But like, so I've been thinking a lot about anger just because obviously we have repeal and we have so many other things at the moment. Mm. The anger just feels that it's just in the air nonstop, which is why I really wanted to do um, a podcast about it because mm -hmm. I feel it personally in like my own life. I'm personally occasionally an angry person and I'm just feeling it in the air. What is your personal relationship to anger? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I've People say to me that I'm kind of outraged about things which I think outrage is a weird one I think anger I think I have righteous anger I'd like to think I have righteous anger mm -hmm. but at the same time I could absolutely full on have a shit fit about something you know going on in the news or whatever and have a full scale giant massive heated debate and argument with someone about it mm. But that would be in the context of that thing. I'm not actually feeling those things emotionally. I'm feeling them attached to the argument. Okay, so it's a subject or like topic-focused anger, let's say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, in terms of other kind of anger, I don't, I don't really have a temper. It doesn't come into your personal life. No, no. Yeah, not not really. I think you know, you kind of that whole idea of like leading with love. I think that's a good way to be, and I think how you like you set the tone in the conversation right so how you are 
speaking and, and, and communicating with someone is how they're going to respond. So you have to be mindful of that. Mm. Um, that if you want to get your point across and are doing it in a way that is super heightened, the only responses you're going to get are generally in that way. And and that's not going to be a valuable conversation that you can work th- things through about. Whereas if you're like actually being like, oh, well, what's all this about? And kind of explaining something or maybe a bit of humor and just being inquisitive and, and coming up with an argument that's intelligent, people are going to respond to you in that way. Yeah. And if they don't, then they're, you know, just dicks. Mm, it's true. They, yeah. they are. <laughs> Yeah, humor is a really interesting one with anger. My 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 shrink tells me that I may actually be using humor to kind of mask my anger half the time. So when I'm being I funny, think everyone does that. No? I'm just like actually fucking outraged and furious. I like that. I kind of sound I sound great, like a really like sort of problematic, traumatized person who yeah. masks her deep <laughs> unhappiness mm, and rage. So with, much to mine with wit, with wit. Yeah, it's funny. I when I uh, got cancer, they I was seeing a psychiatrist. Uh, to you know trying to cope right mm. and um, she was saying uh, to me this thing in, in relation to anger that one of the most unproductive things is uh, resentment you know and, and holding resentment obviously you know resenting that you got sick blah 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 whatever it's so pointless but also resenting other people and I often like get into a trap where I'm like just holding these like stupid grudges or like really resenting you know what someone's doing not about success or anything just like what they're doing and I realised I had to like start letting those things go you know Mm. like if you find yourself obsessing over someone or bitching about them or whatever it's like this is so unproductive (laughs) 100% so that's an anger that I think I I can sometimes fall into a trap of that resentment holding holding grudges huh I'm gonna keep that one in mind (laughs) Um, so tell me, what are you uh, righteously angry about this day? And let me tell you, we keep you on the clock. So this is called 12 Angry Minutes for right. a reason. You're going to be timed. Starting now, Una Malali, your 12 Angry Minutes. What are you telling us to be angry about? I'm kind of angry about the complications that surround uh, queer spaces and the erasure and eroding of gay spaces and queer spaces and I feel so sad when I'm reading these articles about you know certainly at at the moment in the States and and everywhere else really there's this huge issue with lesbian bars disappearing and they're just falling off the map so cities like New York where there used to be you know a couple dozen there's now like a handful some of the you know really super famous ones like the Lex in San Francisco closing and in Dublin we have this situation where, you know, post-marriage referendum, which is something that, you know, politicians and, and economists wanted to own as this, you know, boom for Irish society, like an equality boom, uh, which I suppose it was, and marketing Ireland as a super gay-friendly place, which it is. And at the same time, you know, the Dragon Closes, one of our kind of bigger gay bars, and the Front Lounge you know, who basically tried to sideline their LGBT customer base turns into something else and they painted this disgusting orange colour. So you have a situation where in a city of over a million people that is super gay and, you know, celebrated worldwide because of this amazing thing that we did, becoming the first country in the world to uh, 
introduce marriage equality by popular vote, you've got the George and Panty Bar. And I just think that's fucking insane. And I think that basically I am totally all for everyone being like, no, but like, you know, people can hang out every anywhere and it doesn't matter and la la la. But the fact is it does matter. And and queer people need spaces where they can be with other queer people and exchange ideas and gather and, you know, do all the things that you can't do in, you know, straight bars or whatever or other bars. And that's really super important. And if we're going into this kind of post-gay phase where of course everybody should be able to go wherever they want but I'm really worried about how we're going to preserve queer culture queer nightlife and all of that kind of stuff if we're if we don't actually have the physical spaces together I think that's I think it's a huge problem not just in Dublin obviously internationally this is happening and it makes me really fucking angry. So is a thing that while we are, as you're saying, we're going into this post-gay era where essentially like processions of homosexuality have improved so much. We have a much more we have much more equal societies yeah. the world over, which though means that we have actually like heteronormalized queerness to the point that we actually don't need, we don't require Society saying we don't require spaces for yeah. these different queer people because yeah. we all accept them and everywhere is now okay for them. Mm. And, and and I think a lot of it is driven by economics as well. You know, it's it's an economic decision to take a queer space and turn it into a more commercialized straight space. Um, I think in terms of, you know, the heteronormativity is obviously a huge issue. It's something that I would have struggled an awful lot around the the marriage question. You yeah. know, obviously I campaigned an awful lot for that referendum, but, you know, you kind of have to have in mind, you know, be careful what you wish for as well. Mm. Um, you know, and that that is, uh, you know, if if like queerness is watered down because of marriage, if that's the price to pay for actual equal access to institutions and for kids to have a, an, an outlook that means that they don't feel lesser than, then of course it's the price you pay and I'm perfectly happy to pay that price. But it's still there. Mm. The The whole kind of post-gay thing and I often find that people who, who say, you know, that labels don't matter are the very people who haven't felt the need to seek refuge in, in those labels. Because labels do matter. I mean, it matters to me. It matters you know, to me to be an out lesbian woman because I fucking fought for that and I had to put myself in that position which was a vulnerable position to find my people and to identify myself as that. So when people are like, oh, it doesn't matter, like every black, it's like, no, it actually does matter. Like it does, like stop saying that you're not seeing my sexuality because that's a huge part of my, my identity and I want to claim that and I want to, you know, be that and I want to, you know, share that. So I, I just worry that if we don't preserve those aspects of our culture, particularly like not nightlife culture in terms of queer stuff, because obviously, you know, clubbing and mu- like music and, and how people socialize is hugely influenced by gay people, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, everything that that kind of stems from that in terms of disco, in terms of house music, in terms of techno, in terms of, you know, the atmosphere of nightclubs themselves. Um, 
is from gay culture. Well, I I, w- I think like the reason to me, like the gay culture has always been what influences partying yeah. and like uh, Dionysian activities is because the actual act of being homosexual for you know historically was an act of transgression. Yeah, like gays are transgressive by default. Yeah, and to me, like as a heterosexual woman, I'm missing the transgressive kind of aspects of queer culture because Mm. I liked to kind of be part of that Mm. now and then, even though that's not where I belong. I like to dip into it because I can, I obviously have my transgressive bits. I want to be part of a transgressive movement. Yeah, and that's perfectly, you know, welcoming to be be part of that too. there, There is a weird tension that I can see in kind of, um, queer politics and gay kind of um, activism where the campaigns are, what are they are around? They're around kind of uh, marriage rights mm-hmm. and they're around kind of parenting and yeah. being able to have children, which yeah. are arguably the two most, like, you know, the two most heteronormative pillars of society. They're mm. just like about as you know, normal and domestic and, uh, you know, concerned with kind of monogamy and childcare, which is two things that maybe we don't really want to associate queer yeah. culture with in a way. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's it's that kind of irony or or maybe a paradox that the things that imprisoned and, and were de- imprisoned queer people and, and were denied to them, those things, you know, marriage, for example, is what set queer people free because once you are not once things are not available to you you go okay I can't have that I'm going to come up with all these different alternatives and design my life in this kind of way and by being ostracized or marginalized in society you set up your own patch and that ends up becoming quite naturally alternative mm. to the mainstream um and and I wonder where that's going to go you know, certainly in terms of marriage as a, as a goal, uh, and really, I think for most gays, it's it's the equality part of that argument rather than the wedding part of yeah. the argument. But when that is not available, you've generations and generations and generations of gay people setting up their own models of what a relationship is. Um, if if you cannot access the institution of marriage, so what are those relationships then? They can be you know, long-term, you know, a long-term partnership. It can be a non-domestic arrangement where partners are living in different houses. It can be, you know, non-monogamous where people can have multiple partners. It can be a relationship with three people. It can be, you know, all these different kind of things. And, And that's how queer people organized their relationships because marriage wasn't available to them. Mm-hmm. So where does once marriage becomes an option, where do all of those learnings go? Because I'm interested in how people arrange their relationships that weren't necessarily just about marriage. Like I want to know how those things function and I want to learn from those things and I want to see what options are available to me. And I think that like, does that stop now? You know, because surely marriage, you know, a, a long monogamous marriage cannot be 
the one model that suits everyone in the world. I mean, that'd be a ridiculous thing to say. Well, it seems to also not be working for yeah. the vast majority of hetero couples. They're Absolutely. moving away from monogamy. Exactly. So yeah. it's funny and, that and well, like... Well, clearly it, it doesn't work no. most of the time because then you wouldn't need to have the mechanic of or the mechanism of divorce. Mm-hmm. So I'm just interested in like, there was all this learning of how to kind of organize your, your relationship and your partnership and your lovers and all that kind of stuff. And and where does that go? Because basically what happens is when marriage gets on the table for queer people and I absolutely welcome it and I think that we should have access to it and that right, obviously, then what happens to people who don't choose that? Because you then get in a situation whereas if marriage is the ideal, then are people judged for not buying into that thing? So... You like, and I see it myself. Like, you know, fr- friends of mine who would be in alternative kind of relationship structures, there is a judgmental aspect to that coming from younger people, which is so bizarre because you know, you're you know, like younger people are meant to be less conservative, but certainly among amongst kind of younger gays and stuff, that ideal of marriage and and monogamy and long term partnership has it will become embedded in their culture as it is for straight people. Yet the older generation have already organized their relationships in ways that reflected the fact that that option wasn't available to them. Yeah, they created a DIY kind of yeah. approach to relationships yeah, so, because they couldn't have the like already prefab. Absolutely, and I like, and I really feel that like straight people should be allowed to create those. Um, you know, those those different forms of relationships as well without being judged and without being seen as, you know, somehow weird or deviant or something. Mm. Um, you know, because there's huge taboos in straight culture about, you know, non-monogamous relationships or, you know, people having multiple partners or whatever mm. when when they're when they also have a partner. Like, and there's huge taboos about that. And, and I, I would imagine that that's very restrictive and restricting for, for straight people, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I, I just think that like every option and every way of maintaining a relationship should be available to anyone who chooses that and without judgment. Because I, I don't, you know, I, I don't see how this thing of like one long-term monogamous partner signed into a contract with the state is a f- format that can fit every single fucking human on the planet. No, it can't. Now you've got one minute. So what is the solution? Is there any solution? Can we like assuade your anger about queer spaces and the future of queer spaces in cities? What do you think needs to happen? I think people need to be very mindful that they're disappearing. First of all, I think people need to stake their claim to their importance. I think people need to set up their own spaces where queer people can gather. And I think... uh, people need to respect queer spaces as queer spaces when they exist and not necessarily or think about whether or not they have the right or invitation to be there. Una Malali, thank you so much, my friend. Peace out. Thanks for listening to the show. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you rate us on iTunes, that would be super nice because it helps other listeners find out about us. Our theme music is by Kojak. Our artwork is by Aaron Quinn. 
I'm your host, Roshi Nagnew, and the boss is Alan Bennett. You can find 12 Angry Minutes on Twitter at ThisHeadStuff and at Guts underscore magazine. Have a wonderful day and stay angry. And also, like, if if we want to leave bloopers in, like, at the end of stuff, I'm very happy to do that. I always like hearing radio uh, bloopers. Um, I'm Roshi Nagnew, and welcome to fuck's sake. <sighs> this has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.